<laughs> Welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. My name's Kyle Diaz. And I'm Ryan Harrington. And our favorite this week is Favorite Example of Pop Cultural Osmosis. Um, we talked about this on a past show, but I think it was probably a good, like, 15 episodes ago, so it might be worth giving, like, a brief definition of what pop cultural osmosis is again um and it's basically the process by which uh, a facet or a, a something from a work of pop culture kind of infiltrates the larger kind of uh, social uh, knowledge base so um anytime you have something that's that's specific to one work of art that kind of travels into um the zeitgeist, as it were. I think that's an example of pop cultural osmosis. Is that is that a pretty good definition, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. I think my favorite. Uh, all like it's it's hard to say, but when I think of this, I think of um, the episode of Seinfeld where Elaine is at a party mm-hmm. and someone is talking about her fiance, and then Elaine just says, "Maybe that dingo ate your baby." <laughs> which is a, a, a cry to uh, or it's the reference to the movie A Cry in the Dark which is based on the true story of like an Australian woman whose baby was stolen and they blame her for its disappearance slash death but turns out a dingo stole it Wow, I had no idea that was based... I thought it was just a random... Like, I thought it was literally just a random thing that she just said for no reason. Yeah, and so, like, if you search maybe a dingo ate your baby, like, like the top results for the search are, like, the YouTube clip of the episode of Seinfeld and, like, <laughs> Seinfeld forum posts and stuff. So it's, like, completely supplanted um, this movie. And it starred Meryl Streep. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, I had no idea that original movie even existed. And actually it's kind of a tragic story. Like if you if it it's like the knowing that it actually happened makes that line like a little bit less funny because like a dingo really ate somebody's baby. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I had no idea that that existed. Yeah, so it's something that's just completely taken over and replaced what it originally referenced. For some reason, there are a lot of those with, like, Australians. Like, I feel like, maybe not a lot, but I can also think of, like, in the Crocodile Dundee movies, there's that line where it's like, you know, that's not a knife, and then he's got the big, he's got, like, a bigger knife. He's like, this is a knife. And I feel like many people who have never seen Crocodile Dundee, like, for some reason that they don't really understand, like, every once in a while, just say, that's not a knife in, like, an Australian accent. Yeah, I think you're right. Which I fail at because I'm not doing. I'm not very good at accents, but no, neither am I. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Dingo ate your baby. Okay, um, I'm going to talk about a, a a specific word from the 1961 novel *Stranger in a Strange Land* by Robert Heinlein, and that word is grok. And it's kind of grok is a weird word. *Stranger in a Strange Land* is a weird book, and Heinlein is a weird guy. Um, but basically it was, uh, he, it was like a kind of a social, more challenging experiment for him to write this book about, um, a Martian who comes back to earth and kind of challenges all of our social customs and stuff. And one aspect of the book is that in, uh, the Martian, in it, like the, in the, the Martian biology, water is very important. And the way that they drink is by kind of melding their body with these pools of water and kind of absorbing it. And so 
Grok is their word for both drinking, like the verb to drink, and it also means in kind of a human sense, like to understand um, in a totally complete and kind of uh, intrinsic fashion. Um, and for reasons that I can't really figure out at this remove from 1961, um, this book and this word in particular, like really infiltrated culture in, in like a pretty substantial way where people started to use this word kind of all over the place, especially within the counterculture movement of the sixties and the hippie movement and stuff. Um, and now it's like in the Oxford English dictionary and it's like a real word that you hear every once in a while by um, people who I'm positive have never read Stranger in a Strange Land. And what I also like about it is that um, English is a language that is like pretty rich with uh, synonyms, or at least with words that uh, are almost synonyms, but have very subtle gradations in meaning. Um, but uh, this, nevertheless, was a word that we really just didn't have. Like, there was no good word for, like, being able to understand something in, like, a totally instinctual and complete fashion, and uh, grok is as good a word for it as any, I guess. So, I kind of like that this weird little phrase that Heinlein stuck into his book and um, and uh, kind of made central to the I, some of the ideas that he proposed in the book found larger life... Uh, outside of it. Hmm. Had you heard the word before? Uh, yeah, although I have not read uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. I read it when I was a kid, and I'm not sure that I totally understood it. In not in, I mean, I, I'm sure that I understood the words that were on the page, but I'm not sure I understood kind of the social philosophy behind it. And I, I am not actually sure that I would enjoy it as much now, but I haven't read it in a couple of years. Heinlein also wrote uh, things like uh, Moon is a Harsh Mistress is a really great book. Um, uh, he wrote the original Starship Troopers, which right. was significantly different than the Paul Verhoeven <laughs> film that came out in 1997, although I'm not really even sure which one's better. Um, he started out as this kind of um, uh, highly militaristic author who wrote these like essentially like war books set in space. That's what Starship Troopers is for the most part um, and then starting in the 60s he kind of became like a little bit more of a boundary pushing like um, I don't know kind of kind of countercultural guy like not always to good effect like there's he wrote a book called Farnham's Freehold that I think is actually kind of offensive um, but um, he was definitely kind of experimental he's the definitely the weirdest uh of the big three sci-fi authors of the 60s and 70s, which were Asimov, uh, Clark, and Heinlein. Like, Asimov and Clark were much more speculative, whereas Heinlein was much more uh, interested in how society could be more hippie-ish, mostly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Grok. I think it's an interesting term that somehow managed to take on a life of its own, mostly because I think people found it useful or poetic and wanted to use it in their own lives. In the future, time travel is outlawed. 
used only in secret by the largest criminal organizations. When they need someone gone, and they want to erase any trace of the target ever existing, they use specialized assassins, like me, called loopers. So do you want to talk about looper? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this movie, but why don't we start by having you tell me what you thought of the film. Um, I mean, overall, I I enjoyed it. I there are I think some things that I would nitpick and want to correct, but it was overall I think a pretty good film, and I think it handled the concept of time travel in a relatively novel way. Mm-hmm. I've been excited for this movie and for a really long time. Um, I love Ryan Johnson ever since I have, ever since I saw Brick at the Angelica back in 2006 or 2007. Um, mm-hmm. I just think he's like a, such a great writer, director, um, quite an original voice and like one of the few people who is actually experimenting, even if not everybody finds his experiments compelling. Like it, just talking about Brick, which is a, like a film noir set at a high school in Los Angeles, um, I think that the dialogue and kind of conceit of that movie was off-putting to a lot of people, and I totally understand how that can be the case, but I just thought it was awesome. Um, And I really liked The Brothers Bloom, which came out a couple years ago, which was his take on kind of a con movie, and so when I heard about this movie, I've I've been really excited for a long time. I remember, I think back in April or May, I wanted to include it on our um, films of the summer list, but then we decided Mm -hmm. that September 28th was actually... To Way not, little. not summer anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've been excited to see it for a long time. And what is shocking to me is that after having been excited to see it for a long time and reading all kinds of stuff about it and um, and just kind of keeping up with it in every way that I think it's possible to keep up with the movie, um, it was vastly different than what I expected. Um in what I think is a very good way, and it's a film that I think has only gotten better as I've thought more about it, which is the opposite of what usually happens with me in movies. <laughs> but um, in a lot of ways, this was not the movie that I was expecting to watch going into the movie theater. I actually said the same thing when I left when I was talking to uh, Jill, mm-hmm. that it was it was very good, but it was definitely different than what I had expected going in. So why don't you um, talk about what you were expecting out of it? I think what I was expecting was a movie that was uh, slightly less ambitious, actually, in but not in a technical sense and not in a kind of narrative sense, but in an emotional sense. So um, this movie was many, many, many things. It was interesting. It was compelling. It was emotionally touching. It was horrifying at some points and at one point in particular. Um but it wasn't actually that much fun most of the time. Um, like <laughs> you oh watch my. a movie, you watch a movie like Source Code, and like even though people are in danger, there's like the danger of like uh, in Source Code. I'm picking Source Code just because it's the last um, independently written, like not uh, like original sci-fi film I can think of. Um, but um, it, there's a sense of like f- like fun and frivolity to the to the goings on even as um even as people are in terrible danger and i think that action movies for a long time have been able to walk that line uh really carefully where it's like you know 
still a sense of danger, but like also you're so excited that these guys are doing this thing. And this movie was not like that. This movie was like intense. Like it was it was emotionally intense and it didn't make you feel good and the actions of the main characters made you feel conflicted and like a little bit guilty and a little bit confused about whether or not you actually wanted to root for them. Oh yeah, well these are much more flawed characters and I mean, I think part of uh, the levity of earlier action films, like if you think about, you know, Bruce Willis in Die Hard, Mm -hmm. it's very clear, you know, he's a lone cop trying to take down these terrorists and he has these witty one-liners that he spits out as he's taking people down. Mm -hmm. And this, it's it's much less clear um, who's in the right and who is, well, I mean... It really just seems like everyone is in the wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's and it's interesting too because they even have Bruce Willis doing the kind of stuff in this movie that he would do in a movie like Die Hard. Like there is a scene in this movie where he wields one submachine gun in each hand while shooting lots of people and, and saying witty one-liners. But like somehow it's just still like not fun. And there were some movies, there were some moments in this film when I just like had my hands on my face and I was just like, holy shit. But it was it wasn't like it was always intense. Like it was never it was never like I never laughed at how ridiculous stuff was in this movie, the same way that I did in something like The Avengers, I guess. Um, so I think it was a much more challenging film than I than I expected going in. But I think that there's also an emotional richness to that and a sense of investment that you get when you buy in with these characters and and when you see. In particular, the arc that young Joe goes through throughout the film, which, like, and I know we don't really want to give away spoilers, but um, I mean, we're gonna, to, I think, gonna have I know, to. We're probably gonna have to. But suffice to say that in the last, literally, probably one of the last moments of the film, um, he has to uh, really decide what kind of man he wants to be in it feels like the emotional climax of the whole film and not only his story but also old joe's story who is technically the same character but also kind of not so it's it's quite confusing maybe we should try to do a plot summary for i mean i can't imagine that there are that many people who would listen to this without seeing the film but um we've been talking very abstractly so far (laughs) um Uh, well, let's give it a shot. Looper is a movie about uh, set in the near future, like 2040s, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think it was like 2045. Yeah, because like, the fu- like their future is like 2075 or something. Yeah, and they're basically they're these specialized assassins called Loopers, um, and uh, they assassinate people who have been sent back from the future for purposes of basically body disposal by this large organized crime syndicate who kind of hilariously in the flash forward scene dressed like uh like Hasidic Jews or something. Like they've got the big jackets and the giant hats and beards hats, and stuff. The hats, yeah. <laughs> um and so uh the kind of closing the, the the end of employment for every looper is the day that he has to close his own loop and kill his own self when um that future self comes back to the present and um basically the events of this movie are set in motion when young Joe, Joseph Gordon Levitt's character, uh fails to kill old Joe, played by Bruce Willis, who's come back in time. 
Um, what'd you think of uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's makeup? I've seen some. Uh, I've seen some differing opinions on this among people on the internet. I mean, it's a little distracting, but they. I think they did a really good job of making him and Bruce Willis look similar, because otherwise they do not. Yeah, I also thought that it was actually pretty well done, and I enjoyed seeing like the, just the subtle stuff that they did around his mouth and to his nose and stuff like that. But I, I saw some people who were saying it put him kind of into the uncanny valley for them, which I think it would be too bad if that's what took your... Uh... I don't think it puts him in the uncanny valley, but it's, it's, it is jarring. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't quite Cause look you, like you expect him to. Because like you, you know what he looks like, so you expect to see one thing, and then you see him just slightly different, and so it's just it's just enough to be like, wait, what's is, causes like a dissonance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I think is interesting about this movie, especially as compared to a movie like Prometheus, um, it, our problems with Prometheus, and I think most people's problems with Prometheus, were not that it had um, plot uh, inconsistencies, but that it had character inconsistencies. So, um, it, I mean, it had both. There were times well, that the yeah, plot I mean, didn't make sense, both. and there were times that there the definitely characters... plot inconsistencies. Yes. But what I think is interesting about this film is that there are plenty of plot inconsistencies, but as far as I can tell by thinking back on the movie, very few character inconsistencies. And in, for that reason, in my mind, it totally works. Like, you can sit there all day and poke holes in the uh, time travel mechanism that they used and in the plot and ask oh, questions Oh, there are all about... sorts of questions about yeah, that. Exactly. But I'm not even sure that they really matter that much because they deal with the character consistency parts so well. And I think it's right. interesting that they even give that point of view to one of the characters. So old Joe and young Joe are sitting in the diner and young Joe is asking him all kinds of questions about time travel and about, um, you know, what's going to happen now that they've met each other and stuff like that. And it, like old Joe literally tells him like, it doesn't matter. And, like, I feel like that's something that's coming very much from the director writer director being like hey people who are sitting out there like diagramming this movie out with your straws just take like, a breath don't mm. don't bother cuz that's not what this film's about um it does seem kind of silly though that if you're a huge crime syndicate and you have the power to travel through time use it solely to dispose of bodies it's true well it, i mean i guess they did send a back and it's tough to really say how uh much abe's corralling of power in what I guess is supposed to be Kansas City um, influences uh, uh, you know, the future where the crime syndicate is able to rise. But yes, you're right. I also saw a tweet uh, from that was retweeted by somebody. I don't remember who the original was from, but it was retweeted by somebody I follow that was like, why wouldn't you just send them to like the middle of the ocean? So anyway, I mean, there's all kinds of problems like that. The biggest question I had coming out of the movie... Um, and there's some stuff that they leave tantalizingly open to, and I want to ask your opinion on that in a, sec- in a second. But I thought the biggest uh, plot problem was um, at one point in the film, uh, the old Joe in a flash forward gets a phone call from one of his looper friends who's about to be assassinated. And he tells him this number about the crime boss whose name I forget. Um, oh, yeah. And, and the rainmaker. The rainmaker, and uh, old Joe does not know the significance of this number until later. But it turns out to be the birthday 
year and uh, like hospital code of the of the hospital that the rainmaker was born at. And like my question is just what piece of paper could that guy possibly have been looking at that would show him that information but not the name? Like where where did he get such a random piece of biographical info on the rainmaker and and not have it have any other identifying information whatsoever? Um I well, silly. I mean to to do some hand waving here, I think the fact that um, Emily Blunt's character mm-hmm. like didn't want the child yeah. and essentially pawned it off on her sister, mm-hmm. could you can make the argument that she didn't bother filling out like a formal birth certificate. Oh, you might be right. Yeah, still, um, that it, but but that stuff doesn't really matter. No, like it doesn't. It didn't. Unlike Prometheus, where these things really took away from my enjoyment of the film. Like, this stuff didn't really inhibit my enjoyment of the film at all. Um, Let me ask you a question. Okay. I thought it was very clear, or at least uh, very clearly hinted at, that, um, I think his name is Kid Blue. He's like the fuck-up... The the Gat guy. Yeah, the Gat guy. Um, Was, in fact, Abe's younger self. Really? Did you get that at all? No. Which is... They had this weird father-son relationship, and I noticed they never showed Abe in a wide enough shot for you to tell if he still had a limp. And um, after Abe hits the other guy in the hand with a hammer, like, you never really saw Abe do anything with his hands ever again. So, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly why... But I um, went online after I watched the movie, and in comment sections all over the place, I found people being like, hey, was Kid Blue supposed to be Abe's younger self? And they look just enough alike that I think, that I thought it was it was hinted at. Yeah, I did I did get the, the vibe that Kid Blue, I mean, I know that when Abe crushed his hand with that mallet, I was expecting to see something that would relate back to it. Mm-hmm. But I, did, I just felt like there wasn't enough there for me to concretely make that a connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and spe- speaking of Kid Blue, I, re- I really thought um, I really saw no reason for him to survive old Joe's attack. Yeah. And then, only to then die in like, like the next three seconds that you see him. Yeah, I thought that was a, a kind of a bummer too. Yeah, I thought I also thought that was a little a little odd. But one of the things I did like about the movie is that it took time to uh like give a little bit of character to people like Kid Blue. Um there were a lot of secondary characters in this movie who had remarkably fleshed out little stories. And I'm thinking here of uh she turned out to be a pretty main character, but Emily Blunt when you first meet her, she's sitting on the porch outside of her house and she's like um, miming smoking a cigarette to herself. Right. Um, you know, she's she like taps it onto her hand and then puts the fake cigarette in her mouth and fake lights it and smokes it. And I think that's, I thought that was just like such a clever way to say so much about this character and to hint at things that we would learn later. And I saw little touches like that all throughout the movie with everybody from Seth to Kid Blue who has this quite touching and weird little moment with, uh, with uh, Abe 
when like right before the hammer thing where he's like you know i just wanted to like make you proud and stuff and like i feel like most movies would not have bothered to do that kind of stuff i think you're right um although i think they might have tried to do too much and i wonder if some things just got cut on the floor i still don't understand really why emily blunt was chopping that stump um, no, I didn't either. I thought that it was mostly just a kind of a stress relief outlet for her. I didn't think that was like a plot reason for it. Yeah, but like you see her doing it once and then they go back to it and then he asks about it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. They made it, I guess it just made it seem more important to me than, than it, it really, really should have been. been. Yeah. I have a feeling that there's probably quite a bit in this movie that was maybe left on the cutting room floor. I'm interested to see if some of it's uh, included in the in the uh, DVD, because it was, I mean, it's quite a long movie already. Um, one thing that we've touched upon a little bit in our discussions is how uh, violent this movie was, but, like, affectingly violent. Yep. Like, it wasn't the kind of violence where it's like, Uma Thurman just cut off 37 guys' arms in 10 seconds on, you know, like in Kill Bill. This was violent, like, in a way that really made you feel it. Um, it was... It was... It was really visceral. Yes. I don't know. I think that's the perfect word for it, visceral. And I know that, like, for example, like, I saw it with Satoko, uh, a frequent guest on Pop Cultural Osmosis, Satoko Kanamori, and she basically thinks that it, um, it didn't ruin the movie exactly, but it kept her from actually appreciating the movie because she felt so disturbed by the violence in the film, which is kind of unusual for science fiction films in general. Um... But I think I don't know. I kind of think it was really important for it to be that. I I, I agree actually, and um, I don't know. I mean, just... like if he if you just like shot someone, they just kind of fall over. I don't know. There's there isn't the cert, that certain gravity to yeah everything about this movie. Yeah, I thought it was interesting um, how it, like there's there are big things that happen and they look painful and we feel bad for the people, but there's also lots of like small pain or small scale pain i don't know like i'm thinking of um when he goes back to his apartment when joe goes back to his apartment and he's hiding in the closet and kid blue is looking down into the safe in the floor and then he runs and he pushes kid blue into the safe and then he goes to slam the door of the safe and he slams it on his hand oh and yeah you just see the hand like spaz out kind of and like you know like and uh, then just like I, he's just screams yeah. and it's like Ow! Like, that is so much smaller scale than so many things that we see in action movies where, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger gets shot in the leg or whatever and then continues to walk on it. Um, But yet, somehow, like, so incredibly painful, I just cringed. And I do think we should talk a little bit about what I think is actually one of the most horrifying scenes I've seen in any movie that I can remember, um, which is the scene where old Seth's body starts to disappear. I... Yeah, that was really disturbing, but I think really well done. Yeah, me too, but also just, like, so disturbing. Like, it, it's it's almost totally bloodless. You see a little bit of blood at the end when they kind of pan into the room and you can see the hospital bed and stuff like that. But it's the first moment when you realize it's, it's a very evil and brilliant um, uh, through line of the, of the time travel conceit. 
Like, yeah. because, because they capture young Seth, and you're like, well, what do they really want with young Seth? He's not the one who, um, you know, is doing this. And then you see the tattoo on the arm, and you're like, oh, like, they can use his, oh, they can use his bias and messages. That's kind of creepy. But then when and things then fingers start, start disappearing. And... and then, like, as he gets closer and closer, like, other stuff just starts dropping off. Like, he loses his foot, and then he loses his leg, and all of a sudden, at the end, he's just this, like, crawling, limbless, like, like yeah. Stump. And then he just gets shot. But the thing that I think is really disturbing about that, like the little kicker, is that we know from later in the movie that when the younger version actually dies, the older version just disappears. So that means that Seth is not dead. And Seth did not die at least before the old Seth did, and probably not at all. So, like, he just had to live that way from then on. Although, do you think they sent... Do you think they sent that Seth to a looper to kill? I do not know. There are. I mean, they would have to. They would have to. They would want to clean up that body, right? Yeah. Because the whole point of using these loopers is so there's there's no ties. See, this is this is uh, an area in which I I don't think that the movie actually thinks through its premise enough to understand. And you can I think you can see it even clearer at the end. So, like, when young Joe kills himself, that means that not only did old Joe never exist, but in theory, everything old Joe did should not have been done, right? Or will not be done. Will not be done, but also should not have been done, because if young Joe is dead, then who's the... And, you know, so my question is, like, what happens to, like, okay, so... Like, oh, the, okay, like the so kid, you're saying the stuff that old Joe did... In, in Young Joe's past, yeah, so in the like, past two days or whatever they've been hanging out. So like, is that is that one kid is that one kid actually dead? That has to do. I think that has to do with issues of uh, you know uh, alternate realities and how you want to look at time travel. Yeah, which I mean, there's I don't think there's a right way to. Though, to, to, that to address that, I don't think so either. Um, and you can because, obviously I mean, tell otherwise, them. like you shouldn't be able to see when they carve into young Seth, like the instruction. You shouldn't be able to see that appear. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so that thing, that I'm fine with. Another thing I think is interesting. So I know that they that Ryan Johnson um, went and talked to. Uh, Seth, um, Shane Carruth, I think is the guy's name, um, who's the guy who directed uh, Primer, or Primer, depending on whether you're British or not, I guess. And uh, Primer is a very interesting movie because it's kind of the it's kind of the mirror I- image version of Looper, where Looper is all about the emotional core of the movie and getting you to care about the characters and care about the consequences of their actions. Oh wait, is Primer the the time travel movie? Yeah, where, primer, like it's a, it's a, the guy sits in like a box for six hours and goes back in time six yes, hours. Yes, it's a it's a it's a time travel movie that was made for like a shoestring budget, like literally I think like five thousand dollars in um, in Texas in two thousand four two thousand five by this guy Shane Carruth. It, it's a it's a mindfuck of a movie. Um, yes, yes, I know this yeah. movie. Yeah, because I remember the I remember looking at this chart trying to trying to figure out. Like understand what, it yeah there's a there's a great xkcd where it's like uh mapping out 
like people's timelines throughout movies. So it's got like the Lord of the Rings and it shows you like where in the story Frodo comes and then where in the story Shelob comes and like it's like a Gantt chart for the whole movie. But then when they get to primer it's just like a mass of like interlocking like is like a mess of uh of uh anyway it's kinda hard to describe, but but we'll put it in the show notes. Um but I think it's interesting that he talked to Shane Carruth and I think it's interesting that they brought him in to talk to about Looper because it's like the uh, it's like the mirror image version of um, Looper, where in Primer all of the characters are assholes, and at no point do you ever really care about them or care about what they're doing, and you don't like any of them, and you don't really care about what happens to them. Um, the whole fun of the movie is it's like a little logical puzzle. It you know you want to sit there and figure out like well what like which version of that character is that one who just like ran through like is he a future version is he a past version how far in the future like what's going on and you it is the kind of movie that you like to diagram out with straws. Um, yeah. And so I think it's interesting and and I wonder it's impossible to tell without looking at you know like versions of this script or without hearing more about this from the people who were involved but I would be really fascinated to know what what of the movie is it, it, it comes from his involvement and if if it is anything I bet it is things like the limbs disappearing mm. I thought the I thought the acting was pretty strong overall I thought the little kid was a little wooden at some parts but he did a pretty good but job he's a kid yeah he's a kid it's tough to really uh, Actually, I really like Jeff Daniels in this. Me too. It was such a good role to see him in after seeing him bluster around the newsroom. <laughs> um, to see him, you know, kind of be this, um, like, kind of sadly, kind of sadly violent and uh, terrifying crime lord. Well, um, yeah, because, I mean, you gotta figure, being sent 30 years into the past to hang out and kansas and babysit people shooting themselves is probably a crime mafia punishment yeah probably like he probably did not uh it's the equivalent of getting sent out to siberia (laughs) you're you're not advancing up the ranks out there yeah yeah so you can see he's just like he's he's bored but he's also like every once in a while he has to do something that's really shitty and he doesn't really like to do it but every once in a while he gets to like you know, rescue orphan children from certain death. And I think that that aspect of it where he does seem to genuinely care about Joe and feel sad that he has to, like, I, I, I also totally bought that. Like I totally bought that he would, that he would feel so conflicted about that part of his job. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought this was a, I thought this was a really great movie. I want to see it again. And, um, uh, and kind of see if there's anything about it that pops out on on second viewing. But, I don't know, I think this is the kind of movie that um, people always complain about Hollywood not making. You know, it's smart, it's reasonably high budget, it looks good, uh, it's acted well, like it um, has an emotional resonance to it. It makes you think about things in the way that, you know, good art does. Um it's just that Hollywood actually managed to make it this time, which is kind of amazing. Uh, you know what I didn't like is um, the whole TK thing. The te- the telekinetics? Yeah. Yeah, th- I mean, that was another thing that they just didn't really... It just seemed kind of like crammed in there. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, which just, is weird because it kind of provided the foundation for the climax of the movie. But, but I, mean, I think I think if you sat down and thought about it, you could have written something better. That's probably true. That, and I also that think that didn't seem shoehorned. Yeah, um, I also think that it was. Um, it's a little bit too much to accept that both time travel exists and, like, I felt like it was like, it was almost like two, like two uh, conceits that could have been their own movies. Like it was kind of like you just shoehorned in a little bit of X Men into this movie. But I did like the idea mm. at the beginning. So, mm, you'd see a you'd see a movie just about ten percent of the population that can float coins, and then one kid that can, yeah, like I, explode you. I could totally. That see was that intense, movie. by the way. I know when he lifts that guy up in the air, and then it's like this weird slow motion shot. And I thought that was also edited really well, where the woman starts running. Oh, do you, wait, do you not know who Garrett Dillahunt is, Jesse? Yeah, he was in Deadwood. I know. Oh well, he was he was Roman Novikov. Uh, yeah, he was on Life. That's right. Uh, I forgot about that. Um, I, I always think it's because I also watch him on Raising Hope, and so now whenever I see him and he's not speaking in a really bad Russian accent, I'm like. What are you doing? <laughs> Everything I've ever seen him in, he was—he's kind of a creep. Like he's like a really creepy person, and so I think it's funny because in this, he was supposed to be like a like quote unquote bad guy, but he was also like Joe liked him and said he w- was glad that he didn't have to kill him and stuff like that because he's a he's a reasonably nice guy for a bad guy. But he's—I've just seen him in too much stuff where he's been totally creepy and weird, so I couldn't even take him at face value really. Um. But I thought that scene was really well edited, where she starts running, and oh, like yeah, everyone looks right. kind of confused, and you think that she's going to save the kid, but he she like pulls, and, but then she like goes the wrong way, and you're like, where are you going? Like you're going the wrong way, and then she hits him, and you realize like, oh, she's not trying to save the kid; she's trying to get them both the hell out of that out house. Out of there, <laughs> and then then that's when the guy's guts start coming at his chest. And then, and... like, yeah, his whole body just explodes. <laughs> that blood just. Yeah, but I, but that I was could, really well I could, done. I could totally see a movie set in 2045 about a certain subset of the population that gets to, you know, that starts being having this uh, telekinetic power. I think that movie's already been made a couple times. Probably. Um, but I do kind of like the implication at the beginning, and in some ways that's why I was maybe a tiny bit disappointed when it turns out that there is this super powerful kid. I thought it was really funny, the idea that the human beings would like get telekinesis, which is like a like a ability that we've been yearning for like since time immemorial, and it would just be totally fucking useless. Like <laughs> all you could do is like lift a quarter like six inches in the air. It's like about as useless as a like refrigerator magnet. Um <laughs> like I thought that was that was kinda nice, like at the beginning when he's like Yeah, yeah they think it's like so impressive, but like no one gives a shit and I was like <laughs> that's hilarious. But then they kind of ruined it by introducing the really powerful one. One kind of meta point that we talked about a little bit over chat that I think is interesting is um, this film's relationship with China. And I know know that there's a little bit of like a business angle to this because I believe that this film was like like in the insidery baseball Hollywood type of way. I think it was like financed a little bit by like a Chinese production company. And so they specifically requested, you know, some – some scenes that were set in China or filmed in China or something like that. Um, oh, what I, what I think I about... Did, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I mean, I was just going to say, I just... I wish that there was a... 
a more significant tie-in for why Abe would tell Joe to go to Shanghai. See, I kind of liked that. I thought it was just like a little... I thought it was like a little um, subtle acknowledgement of China's growing power in the world. I mean, I I get that, but I I just wish it tied better to everything else. Well, I think... And I think that this is like a little bit of what I liked about the fact that for whatever reason, this film ended up having a pretty significant little chunk there in the middle set in, in Shanghai, is that um, for like a long time in Hollywood, I feel like China has either been like ignored, Asia in general, actually, has either been like ignored or it's just been this land of like incomprehensible people like running everywhere and threats. You know, like I feel like if 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 a movie has a, set piece set in Shanghai it's probably like a like the main character riding his motorcycle through like a crowded like uh like a like street mall or something you know like I feel like I think that was in Mission Impossible 3 where like you know it's just it's just a it's just background and so I kind of liked that there that this character that Joe's like idyllic heaven-like existence where he gets to be with the woman he loves in the place that he finds really relaxing and he gets to like doze off in the hammock outside and stuff like that I think it was, like, for some reason kind of important that that was in China. I feel like if this were five or ten years ago, that absolutely would have been, like, you know, the French countryside or uh, pastoral England or, like, uh, other places that characters run to to escape from their pasts. Oh, sure. I I mean... I thought it was actually... I thought it was a nice little... However it came to be, like, whatever insider baseball stuff was involved, I thought it was a nice little... uh, Acknowledgement that uh, most movies don't have. So that's why I think it's interesting that in the Chinese release of the movie, apparently there's actually that segment in Shanghai is much longer, um, because they figured Chinese audiences would want to see more of a of the film set in Shanghai. I just don't see why I don't think we would have wanted to see more. Yeah, I don't understand that either. Actually, it would have been would have been kind of cool. I think they cut it for. It said in the in the article that we'll link to here that they cut it for pacing, but I thought that yeah. part was maybe a well little, maybe that part was maybe a little brisk anyway. I would have liked to see actually. I thought you just you, like you see him like dance in a club mm-hmm. and then shoot a bunch of guns mm-hmm. and then he's married. Uh, yeah, then he meets his wife. Yeah. Um, I did think it was like that part was actually kind of poorly done. Was the transition between. Joseph Gordon-Levitt looking old and Bruce Willis looking young, like in oh. one in one part of the montage it was just Joseph Gordon-Levitt with like a slightly less hair, and then in the next part of the montage it was Bruce Willis with the least convincing toupee in history. And he then... <laughs> looked like what's his face from The Fifth Element. He did. He looked exactly like what's his face from The Fifth Element, and I thought it was really smart of them to only show that shot for about a, a half a second, and I think it, they would have done much better to just leave it out of the film entirely. Um, but I wonder whether they shot more, whether part of that Shanghai sequence is more in that montage that would have either A, given us more of Bruce Willis looking like Gary Oldman from The Fifth Element, or B, given us a more natural transition between those two characters, because it was kind of ridiculous as it was. Yeah, it kind of was. <laughs> God, what was his name? It's like Z... Zorg. Zorg. Yeah. Zorg. yeah. Um... But anything else on Looper? I 
kind of thought the uh, like stripper was unnecessary. You know what? I actually didn't think her character was unnecessary. What I thought was unnecessary was the fact that um, it ended up being her son. Oh, as one of the three? As one of the three. I was like, eh, that's stretching it. Yeah. Tone it down, tone it down. But I mean... It didn't really bother me. But but I mean, without that, what's the point of introducing her character? I thought it was just to give a little bit of grounding to him, you know, in terms of like his like weird kind of sexual and mother issues. I guess. I guess. Okay. Yeah. I like I like their guns. The what? Blunder the blunderbusses. Um. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um. I thought. I thought it was very steampunk. Yeah. Like most of the things. They seem to be able to make it modern or futuristic, but that was that seemed. Really steampunk. Yeah. That and the that and using those pocket watches. <laughs> or maybe, maybe that was just I thought that was just his Joe. Yeah. Maybe that was just Joe. For some reason I thought maybe like I got it in my head that like all loopers used them. Mm. I but thought it, so. been, I, it really could have just been Joe. I actually thought so too, but then I noticed afterwards, or like at some point in the movie, that I did not see anybody else with one. And it seemed to be kind of important to him for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah, I don't know. Maybe he got it from his folks or something. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, wait. Oh, although... He was caught stealing from a clock shop, right? Oh, yeah. That's how he was originally... Oh, maybe that's a little... This See, that that's what I like. There's like lots of little stuff like that in this movie. Like, um, at one point in the future, they mentioned that um, he's got like a... The, the Rainmaker or whatever has a fake jaw. Like a plastic jaw or something. And then when Bruce Willis shoots the kid at the end of the movie, he hits him right in the face. Right. And, like, there's another part where the woman's, like, you know, when things get infected on the farm, they have a tendency to just fall off. So I was like, oh. Like, they're mm. saying that his jaw is going to, like, get infected and he's going to have to get a uh, a uh, fake one. But that was, like, it's just, maybe, maybe that's just bullshit and I'm just making something out of nothing. But I felt like there were a couple of those little, uh, like, narrative easter eggs sprinkled in there yeah well which is why i think i i was just kind of frustrated that not everything tied together as nicely as i wanted it as i was expecting it to yeah oh it's still about a month away but i am really 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 interested and will probably have many opinions on cloud atlas oh um i just read the book recently i i have a feeling it's gonna be a big steaming pile of shit Really? And so I don't know if I can bring myself to go to the theater and see it. All right, so you're calling it right now big steaming pile of shit? Yeah, my expectations are pretty low. Okay. I am very, very, very afraid you're right, because I read the book recently and was really blown away by it, but I am also somewhat suspect that you're right, so I guess we'll have to see. I but But if nothing else, it is certainly the most ambitious movie coming out, certainly in October, maybe in the fall. In just in terms of like, uh, yeah, you're, I can't yeah, you're probably right. Trying to trying to do that, so we can we probably won't talk about that next episode, but maybe two episodes. Hence. If I can convince myself to go see it, if you can convince yourself, or if you don't convince yourself to go see it and it is really bad, um, 
you can listen to me bitch about it for a long time if you want. <laughs> uh, so Toy Story 3. Like, um, I'm actually a little bit more interested for our next two episodes. Cause, I mean, oh, I'm sorry, our next episode, because we're going to have to talk about Cars 2. And then, I mean, I guess after that we're going to have to wrap up Pixar in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, but I feel like we just keep saying the same thing every week. And I think that's because this run of Ratatouille, maybe, but definitely Wally through Toy Story 3 is just so incredible. And... Toy Story 3 is a really, 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 really good movie. Um, it's so ridiculously strong. It's, it is it is maybe the best uh, the best trilogy closer I've ever seen. Like, it wraps every single thing up. You know what happens to every single character, or at least they, like, give some lip service to them, like, you know, with Wheezy or Bo Peep or whatever. They at least, like, close out that little tab. Um... It introduces enough new characters to keep things fresh, but it also kind of caps this storyline that started with Andy. It's like internally consistent. Like it's just it wraps up the story in so many ways that are so incredibly well done. Um, and I think a lot of things about it are interesting. I think that especially compared to the last to the, to the prior two movies, there are a lot of things about this. Um, film that ring really true and and it must I don't even know how you keep your world that internally consistent for 20 years or 15 years between movies like I don't know like how can they you know Peter Jackson needed to make the Lord of the Rings movies back to back so that he, he didn't have the actor's age or you know didn't lose the feeling of being in the world and how is it possible that you know Pixar managed to sustain the exact same tone, feeling, uh, characterization for 15 years. I don't, I don't understand. It blows my mind. So, so I think it's, I mean, like the other Toy Story movies and like some of the, like the better Pixar movies that we've talked about, it's like impeccably acted, impeccably narratively constructed, um, plays upon familiar themes that we've seen in Toy Story movies before, but in like somehow a slightly new light um, I think it's interesting how much narrative, uh, kind of how much narrative hay this, uh, this series is made out of separating Woody from the rest of the group. Like, in each movie, Woody gets separated, and I totally forgot about that in this movie, that, like, he gets, yeah. he gets taken away to that house, and he meets the thespians and stuff like that, and I, I had totally, even though I only saw this movie, like, two years ago, I had totally forgotten that whole sequence even existed. Um, it's really interesting though, and this is, uh, like, as we've talked before, the past two movies have kind of been, uh, the plot has kind of reached its turning point when Woody realizes what he has to do, Mm -hmm. um, um, and where he fits in, in Andy's life, and this, like, it's kind of the opposite, where... Woody has always known what he is supposed, ostensibly supposed to be doing. He's been pushing everyone else who who are trying to overcome their own sense of doubt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this is a nice way to to see 
just how different would how far Woody's character has come gone from Toy Story One. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the turning point in Toy Story One, and to some extent in Toy Story Two, both come when Woody decides to stop being selfish and kind of act for the good of the of his friends, basically, instead of for the good of himself. He actually reaches that point like fairly early in this movie when he's escaping from uh, from uh, the the house of the little girl to go back home to Andy's house. Um, and I think the rest of the movie is kind of about him having to deal with the consequences of that choice. Like, what does that mean about him as a toy that he doesn't, that he's not with his owner anymore? So it's like, it's the same message, but I think it was wise of them to not make it the central focus of the movie since we've actually kind of seen Woody in particular uh, go through this journey twice before now. I do I do wonder um if we saw this movie as children what kind of effect it would have have had on us mm-hmm. since I th- such a large part of this movie is accepting uh growing up and moving on which at least for me like when it came out um that was right when I was basically entering adulthood mm-hmm and kind of having to face these sort same sorts of ideas. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting because it's also reflected in Andy himself. And we're a couple years older than Andy. This movie came out right as we were exiting college, right as we instead of right as we were entering college. But um I still saw a lot of of myself in him and in in his kind of net, his uh, the the fact that he needed to decide what to do with all of this kind of stuff that he'd accumulated of one kind of lifetime when he went to do this other thing now, um, and it's and it's it's interesting because his struggle is reflected in the toys. Like, um, the consequence of that is that they also have to figure out like what their lives kind of mean in absence of him. I don't know. I think I think you're right. I think it is it is interesting because none of those are very. Um, childlike lessons and I don't know what it would have been like to watch this movie as a kid um, because we happen to be almost the exact perfect age and maybe the age that Pixar was making this movie for I know we really we really like just grew up with this Toy Story franchise yeah like we were what like six or seven when the first one came out and then ten or eleven when the second one came out and then uh, maybe 22 when the third one came out. That's not quite right. But uh, something close to that. Yeah, I think I was 8, 12, and 23. Mm-hmm. And so there's another interesting question to be asked here in the, in the, while we're talking about like who is this movie for, because this movie is much, much scarier. Than oh, yeah. Either of the prior two Toy Story movies. And in fact, I think I think scarier than any other Pixar film before or or since. Um it's probably I think it handles some of the darkest uh has some of the darkest tones and mm-hmm. it probably is Let me just look at the list of Pixar films again. Um, yeah, it probably is the scariest. Like, when they're all sliding down toward that trash compactor, 
and they basically have to hold hands and just decide to give in to the inevitability of death. Like, that is a huge concept for a kid. Like, yeah. an almost unimaginable concept for a kid or an adult, really. And it is, it's kind of the last, it's kind of the greatest dramatic revelation. Like, um, when you look at, like, all of drama, like, there are small stories and then there are big stories. And I feel like stories in which people have to come to grips with their own impending demise, like, those are big stories. Like, that's a big... That's a, it's just such a such a big thing to have to do as a character. And I, I think it's really interesting that they that they um, decided to push them to there. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that this movie was written and directed by new a new generation of Pixar um, people. Like this was not this was not John Lasseter. This was uh, directed by Lee Unkrit, who's been Unkrit, I think. I thought, I thought it was Unkrich, but I could I have no idea. Yeah. Who's been around at Pixar since the original Toy Story, but this was his first um, movie that he directed all by himself. Like, he was the co-director of uh, Finding Nemo and, and Monsters, Inc., but this is his his first, like, solo directing. And then the screenplay was actually by Michael Arndt, who was the director of Little Miss Sunshine. I mean, the writer of Little Miss Sunshine. Right. Um and I wonder how much of the fact that they felt like they could push this uh, was because they had a new, you know, group of like I don't know would would have would a John Lasseter directed Toy Story three have had that ending based on Cars and Cars two? I'm guessing not. So I don't know. I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, side note: Did they change Andy's mom's face or the way she looks? I don't remember. I don't remember because um, I don't know when I was watching when I was rewatching Toy Story three and they showed his mom. For some reason, I I remember her looking different, mm-hmm. but I can't I can't really remember. I don't, actually, I don't even know if we see. I don't know if we actually see her in Toy Story. Like I don't I think you hear her voice, but I don't think you see her face. I think we see her from the back. Yeah. And I think she has a different hair color and style and I think that's what's throwing me off. Yeah. I don't remember what happens in Toy Story 2. We must see her at the garage sale, right? Yeah, I think so. Even if it's just from the upstairs window or something. Yeah. Uh oh well, it's not important. Yeah, I don't know. It's just something that threw me when I was rewatching. I think it was really smart of them to age the characters in the movie uh, consistently with how real life. I mean, maybe it's not quite you know Andy in 1995 versus Andy in 2010. Maybe there's a little too long there. Um, but um, I think it kind of allows us these little moments where you you're like happy to see characters that you like missed come back. Like when the dog, I forget his name, Buster. When Buster comes in and he's so old, I'm just like, "Oh, Buster!" <laughs> like, and he's old like, dog. "Old dog," and he looks—he's so lazy and he just falls over on top of a uh, Woody, and, and and it's like such a callback to Toy Story Two when he rides him all over the place, um, like through the yard sale and stuff. And it's—I it, don't know, I don't know. It's just—it's a—it uh, was a really smart tact to take, I think. The playtime scene is so nightmarish. 
Oh. <laughs> the uh the toddlers just the toddlers. destroying those toys. It's like, like when uh when they're when they're uh stretching slink out and he's like bunk 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 I'm just like ah stop it stop it. <laughs> it seems it seems a little extreme. Yeah, like uh, yeah, uh, maybe you're right. Like toddlers I, I do feel like like they're like there should have been some sort of adult supervisor being like, "You shouldn't be doing this with these toys." <laughs> but no, you're right. It 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 does seem like one of the worst things, um, that could happen to a toy. Yeah. Except for maybe Sid. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um. Yeah. Um. The whole Sunnyside interlude, I think, was really interesting, and some of what we're talking about. In terms of like emotional darkness and stuff, comes through with uh, with uh, Lotso, who is, in my mind, like just as as damaging and irredeemably evil of a character as uh, Hopper was in in Bugs Life, but considerably more fleshed out. Um, well, I mean, I think I think you could see that Lo- uh, Lotso. Woody could have become Lotso had things gone differently for him in his life. Because, mm-hmm. like, you could see, you can see Lotso is like, well, like you never saw with Hopper in A Bug's Life, you know, anything except for him being like a gang leading asshole. Yeah. But Lotso grew up and then uh, with this kid, and then suffered a traumatic uh, loss, which snapped him. Yeah. But it broke him in like a way that you kept expecting him to be able to recover from, and then he just kept not. Yeah. Like I can't. I, I almost. I almost like still can't believe that he would just walk away from the stop button. Oh, I can't believe. Yeah, that 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 seems vindictive for yeah. just cruelty's sake. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I like the whole interlude at the. At the thing, and, and I liked the way that it was playing a lot with conventions of different, uh, of different uh, film genres. Like we saw a little bit of western there when they're all locked up and they got the box and everything, and Ham's playing the harmonica. But then it also mm-hmm. suddenly turns into a con movie, or like a prison break movie, I guess, where they're playing this elaborate escape. And you know, oh, I, li- I liked, um, yeah, when the phone is like explaining, yeah, the the security of the place, yeah. That was yeah. a really well done scene. <laughs> um, and I mean, what also makes all of it work, especially the uh, the kind of emotional intensity we're talking about, is the that it's still funny. Like, I still can't believe how funny Spanish Buzz is, and uh, Mr. Potato Head is a tortilla. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, so, but like Spanish Buzz was not just Buzz stuck speaking Spanish, but like a completely different personality. Mm-hmm. So do you think like Buzz Buzz just has like multiple personality disorder and no. there are other Buzz Lightyears just like stuck inside and, him? Yeah, and so who's to say that the one that that Tim Allen is is the right one, you know? <laughs> well, especially since now apparently just like hearing some flamenco gypsy king style music makes him start dancing and like that is also kind of creepy because it's like well now his like other personalities are like I don't know battling for control of his <laughs> hips and legs. <laughs> <laughs> Cl- 
Because clearly this is what they intended. Yes. For us to psychologically analyze. Well, my bigger question, <laughs> my bigger question is what kind of, uh, you know, metaphysical link do the potato heads have with their limbs? Where there's oh, yeah. some kind of like faster than light video, like processing, like image processing happen between Mrs. Potato Woman and her wayward eye, where it's like she can see everything that the eye sees, even though she's far away. Like this is important technology. Like how can we? <laughs> how has this been stuck inside of potato heads for so long? <laughs> how does this actually work? <laughs> and so yeah, and apparently they can use any body. Yeah, because at the end he's like a into? he's like a hot dog or something, right? What? What is he? What is he? What is he changing like cu- to? Like a cucumber. Oh, he's a cucumber. Um. Yeah, my other question is like, how are Mister Potato Head? Like, how is Mister Potato Head's limbs? Like, how are they getting around the yard? Because so he's stuck in the box, and then he throws out everything through the little hole, including somehow his second arm. So it's like, how does second arm get out of there? And well, then, you can see it like, like kind of climbing. So it can move by itself. So but it's how like, did how did his arms get the rest of his body parts all the way over to where the tortilla was? It seems like like each each piece can like move kind of and act independently, flop around. Yeah. My other question, and this is like now we're getting to the point of nitpicking where it's not even funny. But like, why would you bother to take anything but your legs? And arms and eyes. Like, why would he take the nose? The mustache. Yeah, the mustache all the way over just to stick it on a piece of pita. Uh, you know, yeah. it's comfortable. <laughs> yeah. There are lots of little Easter eggs and stuff for, for you know, attentive audiences too. I like the nice ascot line. It's a nice little mm-hmm. way to sneak some adult humor in there. And I liked that there's a Totoro just in the background of uh, the little girl's house. I, I, I would have loved that as a kid. And honestly, I would still love to have yeah. a giant Totoro stuffed animal. Yeah, that would be incredible. Are those even available? Uh, I mean, if they are, I'm sure they're super expensive. Yeah. What was your favorite new character? I really, really... Ooh, mm. I really, really liked the thespian hedgehog. Uh, Timothy Dalton? Timothy Dalton. It, he was just so funny. I thought he was hilarious. Um, are you classically trained? <laughs> <laughs> I like that guy a lot. Uh, and that's from the uh, the new house, obviously. From the, from the daycare center? Uh... Pretty much didn't get. I mean, I'm obviously Ken is hilarious. I mean, I think actually in the daycare center, all you really see is Ken and Lotso. Yeah, and you. I see mean, Big the, Baby doesn't say anything. And uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Octopus Woman, but eh. But she doesn't do anything. Doesn't really do anything. And there's like that uh, rock monster thing. Yeah. But none of them, none of them really have any other lines. No, I mean, and I do think that the uh, that the phone guy is pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, actually, one small other thing I want to nitpick. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like I think it makes sense that Andy kept all of the toys he did, except for the aliens. <laughs> I I kind of saw them as just like maybe he just forgot they were there. Yeah, maybe. But they they're so lucky that he did because the aliens end up being key to the whole thing. 
It's true. Oh, yeah, Slash. Also, it's you really have to suspend disbelief that there is like a 24-7 garbage dump working where no one is piloting the giant crane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then just sees it swing. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Especially since they did... Did they come... With, did the did the aliens come with them when they left? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Because they get to the dump and they're like, ooh. For a while I was wondering if they were just going to like stay. Like they were just going to be the new crane operators. Stay. Hanging out. <laughs> the guy shows up at work and is like, what are these things? <laughs> the claw. Uh, okay, I get, uh, I'm really, yeah, I'm running out of things. Yeah, I've got a couple other things on my list here, but. I think we've hit on most of them. Um, I, I, the, the last thing I guess I'd say is that I think that throughout this movie and all of the Toy Story movies, but especially I noticed in this movie, there is a huge amount of um, creativity. It, it, there's a huge amount of, of taking ideas to their logical extremes. So, I'm sorry, is that... Can you hear still that beeping? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. It's like outside. Uh, okay, I guess we just have to push through it yeah um so like there's a huge amount of where you can see that the pixar animators just like maybe made a room and then saw how it could be used like they put things together and then they figured out how they would use them um woody finds a kite on the roof of a of the building that's so brilliant like that's exactly the kind of thing that would be there but it's also the kind of thing where it's like like how did they come up with that i have no idea the way that they reset buzz is so evil and brilliant and the idea that they had just like a like a stash of manuals from all these different uh all these different toys is hilarious and i don't know i think there's a lot in this movie where you just look at it and you look at the way that they that they stage things and you just have to admire the way they were able to push these ideas to their logical limit without ever breaking it at any point so yeah Toy Story 3. Awesome movie. Next week, sadly, we have Cars 2. Cars 2. I'm I'm strangely curious of how this is going to go. Me too. And then we got to figure out, I guess, what the uh, plan is after that, because we've done Brave already. Yeah, we're going to have to... So we're, uh, we're pretty much out. I do think that maybe next week, but if not next week, then for sure the week after, we should have a chance to uh, kind of rank the movies in terms of what we think is our favorite to our least favorite and see how our lists come out. Okay. We, we might be able to do that depending on how much you have to say about cars. Yeah, I have a feeling we're just going to kind of be like, eh, this we could, was not that good. We could, there's a chance that we could have a lot to say about cars, though. Yeah. We're just like, this is wrong and this is wrong and yeah. I don't know how I feel about this. And, <laughs> well, they got this right. <laughs> yeah. Bruce Willis makes a lot of movies. Yeah, he really does. I remember being like, I was thinking like, oh man, Bruce Willis makes a lot of really good movies. And I was like, 
Actually, I think he just makes a lot of movies. He's in a lot of movies, and he's in some movies that now I want to go see because I realize I've never seen them, even though I've always wanted to. Like I've never seen Twelve Monkeys. And oh, now Twelve that, Monkeys is so good. Now that Bruce Willis is in another time travel movie, everyone's talking about Twelve Monkeys. I'm like, I've never seen it. It's it's really good. Yeah. Brad Pitt is in it. Ah, oh, um, who else is in it? Mm, I don't know. I think it's interesting that maybe mm, I don't remember Christopher Maloney being in it, mm. but no, it Twelve Monkeys is actually really good. Wow, he has literally been in like a good three movies a year every year since nineteen eighty five. He likes to keep busy. Like that, that might be an exaggeration, but only up to about nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety, he's got three. Eighty eight is three. Eighty nine is two. Three. Four. Wait. Yeah. Yeah, he keeps busy. Yeah, man. Like, even the last couple of years when I don't really think of him as being in that many movies. He's in one, two, three, four, five movies in 2012, two in 2011, four in 2010, only one in 2009, but then two in 2008, four in 2000, five in 2007. That's crazy. But, like, he hasn't taken a year off since, like, 1987. Yeah. He's done at least one movie every year since 1987, and mostly like two or three. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty impressive. He's getting up there. He was born in what? He was born in 55. Oh, so he's not that old. No. He's just always looked the same, so it's tough to estimate his age. Yeah. Well, you know, you shave off all of that hair. <laughs> like, there's not much more you can change. It's true. It's true. <laughs> 